Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast, our reading and meditation on the gospel of the day. I am James Thomas. Today is Wednesday, November the 15th, 2023. It is the 32nd Wednesday in Ordinary Time, a week away from, well, a week and one day away from Thanksgiving, where it's also the feast day of St. Albert the Great, the mentor and teacher of St. Thomas Aquinas. I was about to say Alexander the Great, but no, he's not a saint. That's a whole different person. Anyway, today's reading is from the Gospel according to St. Luke. As Jesus continued his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled through Samaria and Galilee. As he was entering a village, ten lepers met him. They stood at a distance from him and raised their voice, saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. As they were going, they were cleansed. And one of them, realizing he had been healed, returned, glorifying God in a loud voice. And he fell at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus said in reply, Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? Has none but this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? Then he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has saved you. So it's interesting as Thanksgiving does approach, but it's still a week and a day away. This is the reading often used for Thanksgiving Day. Jesus heals a bunch of them. Ten were cleansed, were they not? Where are the other nine? This foreigner, this Samaritan, comes back to thank the Lord. Jesus often focuses on non-Jews. Why? Because he's trying to show that his kingdom belongs to the whole world. But also, it just reflects how the Jews should know better. And so here we have, and especially the Jewish leaders, they are the chosen people. He's one of them. So he especially gets angry with them and tries to make an example out of them. Yet at the same time, you know, it's not to put down the Jews. He chooses his apostles from the Jews as well. But what does he tell them? Go and minister to the whole world, not just among the Jews. There are 10 who are cured. They are Samaritan. They have faith. He's trying to point out, hey, faith is going to come from other places, and it doesn't matter about your ancestral origins. Physical circumcision does not matter. It's rather about the circumcision of your heart. It's about faith. Yet even among those people, who had the faith to be cured, who happened to be coming from somewhere else, only one came back to say thank you. It's really not a good statistic. And it gives us hope (laughs) to see that Jesus, in a sense, in a worldly sense, didn't have much luck. (laughs) The reality is Jesus doesn't need luck, but Jesus is going to conquer the whole world. Uh, Little by little, you know, he's going to conquer the Roman Empire over 300 years. Christianity will, and there will be missionaries to go to the whole world. It's often going to be through pain and suffering, though, that these things work out. But I wanted, I was just thinking of statistics, and I wanted to talk a little bit about stats today. And uh, some of the programs, I'm not a fan of programs, honestly, but there are programs out there to help build up the faith again, to help renovate parishes. And 
Well, once again, I am not a fan of progress. See, people today think, because just like the secular world, they bring this into the church and they think, oh, I have this great program and it'll really help your parish. And even statistically, this program works really well. What's really going to help your parish is faith. Let's just be honest, you know, before I get into all this other stuff, which is, I think, helpful to talk about because we can pick apart the elements. But yes, the most important thing is faith, whatever we can do to evangelize. And really, that has to be one person at a time. That's one of the things Pope Francis has emphasized, well, in the early days of his papacy, that the art of accompaniment is the way we need to go nowadays. And it's very tied into Pope John Paul's new evangelization that we can't just evangelize the masses. That's not what happened before. It's not what's going to happen now. The Blessed Mother evangelizes the masses with her apparitions, Guadalupe and Fatima and Lourdes. She does it. But you and I, we can't evangelize the masses. A lot of times we're tempted to think that we can because we're trying to get things back to the way they were you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, or at least the way we saw things to be, the way that we thought they were. But remember, when we had in America these waves of new immigrants and they were all going to church by the thousands and tens of thousands, they had been evangelized in the old country. They And, and the thing is, they needed something to cling to. It was a different scenario. But we see those large numbers and very often priests that were harsh in their teaching, just, you know, cracking the whip and fire and brimstone and everybody falling in line. We see that and we're tempted to think, well, I just need to do that. And if they don't listen, well, then we just give up. Well, while it is true, sometimes we need to shake the dust from our feet. Still, the reality is in re-evangelizing the world, which is what the new evangelization is all about, we need to consider souls one at a time. We need to consider souls in small groups. And that very much ties into what I wanted to talk about here, statistics. Only one person came back for Jesus. When There's this book, Divine Renovation. I have it right next to me. I haven't actually read it in a while, but I'm just going to throw some things out there today. Maybe I don't know the exact numbers, but I'm going to throw out some numbers that are generally correct, and uh, I think we would all agree with these numbers. I think the number of kids that graduate eighth grade and get their confirmation in eighth grade, the return rate is like less than 1% of you know how many of those kids come back to church the following year. Now, that's the most important number in my opinion. There's also the numbers, and I forget exactly what they are, but... You know, people that go through RCIA, there's a very low return rate. Let, let's just address those two things right there. We spend in a parish, when I worked in a parish, we spend eight years working with a kid and his or her family. And of course, their siblings and of course, their classmates, you know, but let's just look at each individual kid for a moment and talking about this. We meet the kid in kindergarten or first grade. There's books that we use. There's prayers. Sometimes we have some really nice programs for the younger kids. Once again, I'm using that word program, but still, you know, there's an introduction to God, an introduction to prayer, and we draw a lot of nice pictures. Then in second grade, there's preparation for first Holy Communion as well as first penance. And little kids don't have a full understanding of all these things, but we try to do the basics and we try to get them to go through the motions of what they need to do to make this happen. 
then nothing really significant comparing it's comparing us to first communion nothing really significant happens for the next four years and a lot of parents have figured out that they can literally skip third through sixth grade and still be okay for confirmation in eighth as long as they come by the beginning of seventh grade it's a horrible reality but that's what's happening more and more so then those that want confirmation because more and more aren't getting it they realize they can still use the church for a wedding down the years even if they weren't confirmed which is so frustrating to think about. But yeah, they come back for seventh grade. And then seventh and eighth grade, what do we do in a parish setting? We jump through hoops to get these kids in love with Jesus, ready for confirmation, to at least understand what confirmation is, to do their service projects. And when all that is done, the numbers show that they never come back after getting confirmation. I have some Protestant friends who now we as Catholics believe in infant baptism and the theology of that is great. There's a lot of reasons for that. And in fact, I mean, back in the day, my mother will say that she got her confirmation when she was in, I think it was confirmation first, then first communion, which is the proper order. And they did it all in second and third grade, but they had huge numbers of kids that just their parents wanted them to get formed in the faith. So they kept coming, whether it was Catholic school or CCD from third to eighth grade, sometimes even in high school, CYO, youth group, etc. So what do we have nowadays? We have these very, very low numbers of students returning. And why is that? I, I just, it's, it's hard to talk about because there's so many different factors and we really don't know each situation is unique. Sometimes I'll talk to kids in seventh and eighth grade and they'll tell me, I have no faith. I don't believe in God, but my parents make me come to this. I'll tell you the greatest success stories are with the homeschoolers. That's very much where the success is nowadays. It's something different happening there. Oh, I was going to, I was starting to talk about my Protestant friends where they don't believe in infant baptism. So what they do now, I think we could do this with confirmation but this is what they do actually with baptism. Some of them have confirmation, some of them don't. So that's another whole topic. But with baptism, what they do is maybe around fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, if the parent has been bringing the child to church all along and getting them involved in their faith and praying with them at home and really forming them, then what happens is they uh, they they say if they're ready, if they really want to accept Jesus Christ as their savior by fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, which by the way, I personally, I think fifth grade is a much better age than sixth, seventh, and eighth for confirmation. I mean, either wait till later, or I, I think that you get more graces when you do it earlier. They're more innocent. Fifth graders are usually a very vibrant bunch. There's, they haven't been corrupted yet. I think fifth grade's a great age. Well, anyway, all these Protestants, they get their, their baptism around fifth grade, around that age where they choose it they want it. They get up in front of the church and say, I am a Christian. This is what I desire. I believe in Jesus. And they're taking ownership of it. And the parents and the church working together have prepared the student for that. That's also what happens among the homeschoolers, except the homeschoolers, yes, being Catholic, they get baptized as infants. But a lot of them are requesting confirmation when they're younger. And the students are saying, I believe I'm ready. And if I interview a fifth grade homeschooler versus interviewing a a regular kid who's in eighth grade, 
the homeschooler is always better, even in fifth grade, even in third, fourth grade, they're better because they're living the faith. Something is different. They're living the faith. It's not this minimalistic attitude of what do I got to do to get through this so that I can have my Catholic graduation and my dinner and my pictures and my gifts. I know I sound very cynical in saying that, but this is what we have. And then there's the phenomenon of RCIA. Now in the RCIA documents, it says it's not supposed to be a class, but it's supposed to be a forming of the whole person. And it's not supposed to be a quick September to April kind of a thing. It's supposed to be a process where the person gets confirmed when they're ready. They get their sacraments actually when they're ready, whatever sacraments they need. And so this is for adults. And it says the formation program needs to include prayer and fellowship with the larger community. That makes a lot of sense. You form relationships, you form bonds, and you pray together and you learn how to pray. You learn how to live the Christian life. Maybe there's even some outreach, like we would force the eighth graders to do their service hours, you know, if there's some living, breathing, organic outreach. You know, these are things that help to keep them longer. The prayer, the fellowship, and the learning, and the service. Anyway, what do we have? We have a lot of failure in the church today. Everything's fallen apart. So where do we see success stories? Well, there's that book, Divine Renovation. There's also another great book, Forming Intentional Disciples. Divine Renovation makes everything about small Christian communities, small prayer groups. Forming Intentional Disciples talks about taking your people on retreats and Uh, Then after the retreats, having follow-up with helping people discern their charisms to become leaders in the church. And when I say leaders in the church, we got to say that very carefully. A lot of people think they're leaders in the church because they use a certain skill to, you know, help the parish in some way. They're good at finance or maintenance or decorating or landscaping or, and that's great that people use their, their gifts and skills to help the church. But leadership needs to be more than that. Leadership needs to be first the person is formed his or her self, him or herself. In other words, through their own life of prayer and their life of learning and growth and even doing some ministry, then there's a, and I don't even like the word leadership. It really is more about being a servant. But yes, so we discern the gifts and the fruits of the Holy Spirit and what we possess and how we can use them at the service of the community. And it's more than just the physical stuff, although that's important too. It's about spiritual service, spiritual leadership, whatever word you want to use. But let's go back to these things that turn on people's faith. In the case of the lepers, I mean, think about it. Ten of them had miracles and they were miracles that transformed their own lives. And only one came back to say thank you. So what is the hope for a confirmation class very often taught by someone without any formation, him or herself? There's not much hope for that. So what do we do? Well, I do love these books because, all right, let's take Divine Renovation. Divine Renovation talks about prayer groups, smaller Christian communities. Once again, getting back to my Protestant friends, a lot of these churches are on fire but they're small. It's not that, you know, and and I'm not saying, okay, the Catholic church needs to kick everybody out, but we need to figure out a way to do this. 
The the small Protestant churches, they know each other well. They get involved in each other's lives. And then when someone dies, they all go to the funeral. When someone gets married, they all go to the wedding. When somebody has a baby, they all go to, I guess they don't do a baptism, but they might do the christening or whatever, the dedication ceremony. The point is they're involved in each other's lives. They pray together. They don't just get together on Sunday. And it's just like the homeschool communities. You form your kids together in that setting, and there's a building up of faith together. There's a a joy that they experience in one another and in God that they encourage each other to. What happens very often in the Catholic Church is that we've been so big, and now we've lost so much momentum that what do we do as quote-unquote leaders? We don't even understand the word leader anymore. We're not evangelizing, which is what needs to happen because that's the lifeblood. That's the heart. But rather, we have these big meetings about how to fix the roof, how to clean out the basement, how to fix the air conditioner, how to merge the parish and sell the buildings We're tending to the externals. We're cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup remains filthy, to use the words of Jesus. So what do these books recommend? Divine Renovation recommends prayer groups. If you are a believer in Medjugorje, (laughs) I am, although I realize there's, there's issues with it, but you know, the church is in the process of evaluating it. So that's where we leave it officially. Uh, the, the initial commission to study it came out with a very positive report, but anyway, this isn't about Medjugorje, but if you do believe in that, uh, one thing the visionaries will say the Blessed Mother has always emphasized is prayer groups. Find people to pray the rosary with. And Jesus speaks about prayer in common. Where two or more are gathered in my name, I am with them. But it's, and the other day I was talking about devotional prayer and liturgical prayer. Okay, it's one thing that we come together on Sunday for our liturgical prayer which very often, I mean, it is the high point of prayer, objectively speaking, yet very often it's very distracting and it's watered down and it's, it's chaotic. Um, yes, we need to work on that. And that is something that happens on a larger level. I mean, if you only have one priest for thousands of people, okay, he's not going to go around everybody's house and say a separate mass on Sunday. We have to figure out how to make our masses more reverent, more beautiful, more focused on the Eucharist. That's one thing. But as individuals, How do we charge up our own faith? Well, as I was just describing, it's not going to happen very well in these larger settings when it comes to me having that personal connection. So what do we do? We we need smaller groups of people that we pray with and inviting other people into those groups. We need smaller groups of people who pray a rosary together, who read scriptures together, who discuss their faith together, who live their faith together. It's very, very important that we build each other up in faith, that we know each other, that we form community. So the author of Divine Renovation tried this up in Canada and had great success. Oh, shoot. I'm so sorry. That's my ringer. It's a screaming goat. And I had just turned it off, so I have no idea why it just screamed at me. Anyway, I turned it off. Sorry. (laughs) I did that once before, and somebody said to me, well, you should re-record the whole podcast. Well, I'm sorry if I'm not able to do that today. Anyway, that's just the groanings of my heart because I'm so passionate about these topics. The other book, Forming Intentional Disciples, talks about get everybody to go on retreats. Now, that's fantastic. Anybody ever been on a weekend retreat, a week retreat, a month retreat? Fantastic to get away. 
to focus yourself on God, maybe to experience some community while you're on that retreat with other people that you're retreating with. Beautiful, beautiful experience. Not far from me, we have Malvern Retreat House in Pennsylvania. Beautiful, beautiful place, beautiful experience, wonderful people that lead the retreats. I've had so many amazing experiences at Malvern, and you come home all fired up. And when I teach, I lead my students on retreats as much as I can. I try to do trips with them, whether it's one day, whether it's a weekend, to do that as often as possible. It's something that just really charges you up, gets you excited for the Lord, gets you focused, gets you excited about prayer and and refocused on reading scripture. And, And the music too, music is an important part of that. The problem with the retreats though, and I see this especially in teaching at a regular school, is uh, you come home and then you go back to your chaotic Sunday mass, your parish that doesn't really sustain the faith that well because it's too busy with physical things or just ministering to the masses, and then people lose that fervor. So while, yeah, the people writing that book are talking about how to transform a parish and you you follow up the retreats with uh, helping people discover the gifts that they have and, and building people up into ministries, that's fantastic. But I mean, unless you're one of the people in leadership doing that big project, uh, you know, most people are not. Most parishes don't have that going on. So what do you do? Well, the retreats and the pilgrimages and things like that need to be followed up with a prayer group. If you go on a pilgrimage, fantastic. But very often you lose touch with those people. Well, what if you could go on a retreat or something with a group of people that you love and then you continue to meet and pray afterward? That's the thing. And that's that devotional prayer fueling the liturgical prayer. If all you're doing is the liturgical prayer on Sunday, the fire starts to go out. Even though the liturgy is the greatest of all prayers, the experience, that personal experience where the emotions are engaged starts to, you know, fizzle out. Whereas if we are feeding our devotional life with keeping those connections, well, that's a big help. Anyway, I wanted to just talk about this today as far as just the level. I don't think people realize the level of failure that is happening today. And yet there are ways to fix this. There are so many good things happening. There are communities, little communities popping up all over the place. There are prayer groups popping up all over the place. You can find them. There's, and a lot more and more are online. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, of connecting with people online as opposed to connecting with people face-to-face, but still, it's a way to connect, and it's a way to, to keep the, the torch lit. But yes, we do need to connect with others. I just highly recommend we live our faith. We, we find those things that work for us. We find those things that get us excited, and we keep going with them, and we try to draw other people into those things. If You know, it's so frustrating to me, and I know so many of you out there have expressed this frustration to me that you work so hard to get somebody to love Jesus and love their faith. But then you think like, all right, they're, they're going to go to church now weekly. And then, then you have them and you, we end up losing them. Why? Because that weekly experience of going to mass, once again, it's the objective, objectively speaking, it's the greatest thing ever. It's, it's literally Jesus dying for us. Jesus giving us his life, his body and his blood, etc. But on the level of the human emotions, which are so very, very important, on the level of our engagement, that that needs to be sustained. Very often, I've even seen on the diocesan level where ministries that happen on Sunday get shut down 
because they feel it's to the detriment of Sunday Mass. But the reality is the people aren't going to Sunday Mass because they're not engaged, because their faith isn't growing. So even if we can do things on a Sunday, because that's the day people are more open, you know, connecting with people, whether it's spiritual, social, all of the above, and then maybe connecting it to a Sunday Mass, it's also a great idea. Anyway, as we meditate on the thanksgiving of this one leper, let's each of us be thankful for all that we've been given and continue to reach out to Jesus and practice our faith in whatever way we can. Have a great day, everyone. God bless you.